When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to people about their stories with Feds, Marfan, Lois Dietz, and related vascular and aortic connective tissue conditions. This is your host, Katie. And before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in this podcast are those of the individuals involved, and the information presented does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Any opinions that I express in this podcast are my own and not of my employer. I hope you got a chance to listen to the last episode with Grace Barnhart, a young adult living with Marfan syndrome. On today's episode, we're talking to Allison Pullins, whose eight-year-old son James also has Marfan. Before we go over to the interview, if you like this show, consider supporting it by joining my Patreon. My supporters on Patreon make it possible for me to continue producing this podcast, and you can join and support the show for just a few dollars a month. But whether you support this work through the Patreon or just by sharing it, it all helps. So thank you. Let's get into the show. Hey, Allison, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to share James's story with Marfan and your own experience and all of this. It's such a pleasure meeting you a few years ago, and I'm just so excited that you're here. Do you want to introduce yourself to everybody that doesn't know you? Yes, and thank you, Katie, for having me on the podcast. I feel very honored to be a guest, so thank you for asking. I was actually reflecting earlier today on when we first met which was very memorable because we were both lobbying on Capitol Hill for Marfan and Veds and Lois Dietz. And I remember just really connecting with your story and with you and admiring the advocacy work that you do. So thank you again. A little bit about me. I live with my husband and my two kids, James, who is eight years old, and Naomi, who is almost six, going on 25, minimally, and our two dogs, who one of them, he probably wouldn't like me to reveal his age. He's almost 16. And then a one-year-old puppy. We live in North Carolina, which is relatively new for us. We lived in the Bay Area for a really long time. And we relocated in 2021 just to be closer to our family because I was born and raised in West Virginia and my husband, Neil, is from Virginia. So this way, the kids could see their grandparents more. It was a great move for us. 
professionally, I've been in healthcare for about 17 years where I work with mostly provider organizations. So think hospitals and medical groups, and I help them determine and document physician compensation. I have worked with hundreds of hospitals across the US. I very intimately know the healthcare landscape. And when James became a Marfan patient, in 2018, I learned another side of it that I never expected to know. <laughs> that is such a nice way to put it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That is a very nice way to put it. So how old is James now? And when was he diagnosed? So James is eight and he was diagnosed just before he turned three. So in the grand scheme of things, we got really, really, really lucky with an early diagnosis that arrived before three. And how did that, how did that happen? Like walk us through this. It, again, like the fortuitousness of it continues to shock me. And I also feel very blessed that it happened so early because if it were later, there would have been, you know, potentially serious impacts for James so how it all happened was James was, I would describe him as a kind of wonky baby. He, <laughs> he, uh, he was just super skinny, really long. He had very strange hands and feet. And I, you know, my husband and I were both quite petite people. And I just kind of look at him and be like, well, I'm sure he gets that from like my side or somewhere that's somewhere. And the, his pediatrician was always thinking there was something wrong with him, to which I was like, no, my baby's just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, but when he was about six months, the pediatrician thought she saw what she described as asymmetry in his eyes and thought maybe he had a lazy eye. And since I had a lazy eye and my mom had a lazy eye, just running families, we really wanted to get it checked out. And so we went to the ophthalmologist when he was about nine months. She said, your kid looks great, but just to be super sure, why don't you come back in six? And when we came back in six months, we discovered that James had gone from having perfect vision to being fairly moderately myopic. And then over the course of the next two years, the myopia progressed and progressed. We were about to start therapy to help halt the progression with atropine drops, which is much more common in Asia than in America, but then discovered through a particular test he took that his it was his lens dislocation, which was contributing to the myopia. And given that lens dislocation in a two-year-old without a genetic condition is highly uncommon, that's how we got started down the Marfan path. And before we had a genetic consult, we had to get an echo. And it was during his echo that we found he did have an aortic aneurysm, mitral and tricuspid valve prolapse. And given the Gantt criteria, I think they call it, his cardiologist diagnosed him on the spot. And then we had a follow-up genetic confirmation two weeks later. And all of this unfolded from about mid-May 2018 through the end of June 2018. So it was a very intense couple of months where we thought, does the MR fan? We kind of, once once the once it was suggested that he had Marfan, just looking at him, it's kind of like, oh, right, this makes total sense. But we got confirmation just shy of his third birthday. 
Did you know what Marfan was before? I did, actually. It just so happened that a colleague of mine, her mother and brother had Marfan, but she did not. And I knew that her mother was in very poor health, had a lot of surgeries. Her brother also had almost died once when he was in his 20s. And so I was familiar with the condition. And so I knew, (laughs) I kind of knew what was happening. And my father, who is a physician, also, you know, could see, could see what was unfolding as well. In fact, when we were getting the results of the echo, the cardiologist who was just been one of the kindest providers I've ever worked with, he came into the room, he said James had an aneurysm, and I just started like bawling, but very quietly because James was sitting in front of me and I didn't want him to hear. And I remember he looked at me and he he was on the verge of tears as well. And he goes, I don't need to tell you what this means because you already know. I'll never forget that. Yeah. How did you how did you kind of like move forward with this information as a parent? I mean, I think James is your first child, right? He is, but I had a how old was Naomi? She was eight or nine months old when he was diagnosed. Mm. And just like such a delight too. She was one of those babies that like People would stop on the street and say, your baby's so cute. She was just super smiley and like happy. And um, it was, it was surreal, Katie, being dealt this diagnosis, having a two-year-old and an infant. It was completely devastating for Neil and I and for our entire family too. The first, I want to say year, maybe year and a half was it was incredibly painful i cried all the time i'd cry on my way to work i'd cry on the way back from work i just you know i kept thinking about all the things james couldn't do and how his life would change and how he probably would never live a day in his life without thinking about marfan and also me like i would never i felt like i i could never sleep at night quite well enough again after this information it was life-changing yeah how did you like how so i know you now like i didn't meet you during that time right i met you several years after that moment how did you how did you go from like that coping with it to where you are today because i feel like like when i know you today i know that we all have those hard moments still but you're very much like in the advocacy space and in the awareness space. And I, I just feel like I see you all the time. (laughs) And like, how did you get there? Like, I mean, where, how did you move forward from that emotional place? One step at a time. I think, you know, the first year I was at rock bottom and so fragile and I felt completely broken. And in, in some ways I, I actually do feel somewhat broken and, and when I talk to people about that, that haven't gone through grief or just haven't had this type of experience, they don't really get it. I think I'm better like this. Like I, I, um, James's diagnosis, while in many ways was and continues to be traumatizing, I also think it was a moment for my family to realize how precious we all were and how precious James is and how he is a gift. 
And I've tried to, in my darkest moments, focus on, on that. I also am the type of person who, <laughs> you should, could ask anyone that knows me well, I don't do very well with a lack of control. I'm super type A. Um, I love to see forward progress. I get really irritated if things don't go my way. And this was a huge wake up call for me to be like, yo, like this is, this is not going to go your way. I, you know, I once heard the phrase like, you, you get the children you deserve to have. And I very, very much think that about James. Like I, and I'm, I'm not a super spiritual person either. It's just a feeling I have. The, the other thing I'll say about the control piece was since I knew I couldn't do anything to directly change what was going on with James's health, other than stay on top of it, I started getting involved in advocacy work and awareness work because that felt like I was doing something mm -hmm. to make the situation better. And that, you know, the fundraising, the awareness, that work has absolutely helped me cope with this. Mm -hmm. I find that very relatable to I very, very relatable to the advocacy piece and how it has the ability to kind of like change the emotional experience in a way because you're like you are in a way controlling what you can and doing what you can. Very relatable. So I've met James. James is absolutely adorable. I and that is like an under that is the understatement of the year. <laughs> like <laughs> he was such a delight to be around. He's so cute. So let's go back to what he was dealing with then around the time of his diagnosis. You said you had this aortic aneurysm or aortic root dilation. Yeah. And yeah. also his lens was partially dislocated. Is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. So what have they, do they have to do surgery for the lens dislocation? No, but we're starting to think about it. And not because we have to, but because of a more quality of life issue. So James, he he's very caught up in his own world. He's a very cerebral child, but he's extroverted. He loves people. But now that he's getting to an age where the social dynamics are becoming more complicated, I'm seeing him miss some important social cues or things with his appearance. Like, for example, there could be a huge booger hanging out of his nose and he goes to the mirror and he looks, but he does not see the booger. Mm -hmm. um, and so a part of me is thinking, and I've never had an off, I've never had a conversation with an ophthalmologist about this because all the ones we've seen have just like not even gone there with surgery because he doesn't quote unquote need it. I'm starting to think maybe this is something we need to explore earlier than we should. And when I talk to an amazing woman at, at Johns Hopkins about it, she agreed with me and said, let's, let's have you see yet another ophthalmologist here. So he, he hasn't had any surgical interventions yet, but he absolutely is aware that one day he will need them. And when he first found out about that, he was completely terrified. But over the years, we found opportunities to talk about surgical procedures, talk about 
how the physicians and care providers do things to make you safe and slowly as he's gotten older, give him age appropriate information. He doesn't have the kind of terror that he used to when surgery is brought up. That's great. How do you communicate? Like, I mean, how much does he know about Marfan and like how these different things in his body, like how, take me through that. So Neil and I felt very strongly at the beginning of this journey that we had to raise not only a responsible and accountable person who would go to his medical appointments and take care of himself, but someone who was proud of who he was and that Marfan is a part of who he is, right? It's not everything. It will never be, but it's, it makes up the fabric of James and we never wanted him to feel ashamed that he had Barfan syndrome. And so we started when he was about to turn four. Uh, so he had Marfan for a year. We started calling it Marfan. So we would say things like, James, we're going to go to the eye doctor because you have something called Marfan syndrome. So we started talking about the word in front of him. And then over time, we started to introduce other concepts about Marfan Depending on what his interests were, you know, he went through a big science streak when he was five or six, and we started talking about genes and chromosomes and mutations and all kinds of cool things like that. And so over time, he has learned more and more about his condition, which is important because he's a strong advocate for Marfan. As you know, Katie, he was on Capitol Hill with us screaming down the hall, I'm going to meet Nancy Pelosi. He <laughs> didn't actually meet Nancy Pelosi, but he certainly wanted to. He did. And to now, you know, when he was six, he made a speech in front of 200 people that he wrote himself about Marfan syndrome and his experience with Marfan syndrome. So we, we have always wanted to share information with him. We've been sensitive to age appropriateness but we've also done this taking his lead. So whenever he asks questions, even if those are difficult questions, we answer them honestly. And so, you know, is this the right approach? I have no idea, but we're doing our best. And this is just what felt right for our family. Yeah, totally. And I can totally see that. Like the, I, I appreciate the age appropriateness coming into play and like just tailoring the information. But what I appreciate the most out of that is the honesty, the honesty part. Like I just, I can't imagine knowing about it growing up, you know, and what that would have been like. So I wasn't diagnosed when I was 28. And so there's all yep. of this theory, I think out there about, you know, what, what is the best age and how do you say it? And it's like an open question that everybody just has to answer a little differently depending on their own child and how their child is. How totally. Yeah. So how has it been with the hard questions? Like how much is he starting to connect now? Because I know he was so when I did meet him in Capitol Hill in twenty that was twenty twenty, like right before the pandemic. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, right before. It's like weeks. Weeks before <laughs> everything shut down. And he was like super I mean, he was just he was, like you said, extroverted, very proud of who he is mm -hmm. with Marfan, which I, I loved. 
is that the same now that he's eight? Like what has changed now that he's getting? Things are starting to change for sure as he's become more sophisticated and worldly, I, I will say. And James has always been able to particularly cognitively grasp concepts that maybe other kids at his age wouldn't. And so he's, he's just starting to understand that, um, that he has a very serious condition. He always knew it was serious, but he's starting to reflect on that more. And we're definitely noticing more anxiety come up, particularly around death. You know, he went, he's been going through a period where he's terrified of dying. And then um, just the other day, he asked me, we were having a really great lunch together, just the two of us, which we hardly ever get to do. And he said, mom, does Marfan syndrome kill people? And, you know, I have, I've been dreading this question for years. And so my response was, well, what do you think? Just to see if he was ready to, to really hear the answer. And he said, no. And then he kind of looked down and then he looked at me and he was like, yes. But you could tell in his tone that he knew. Yeah. And he'd known for a while. He just was finally at a point where he had the courage to verbalize it. And it was a safe setting. It was just with me. We often will have these private talks, he calls them, where we'll like go off so his little sister can't, <laughs> can't chime in. But I can definitely tell that it's, it's starting to weigh on him as he gets older. And what has that been like for you as a parent? Well, um... I, I knew the day would come and I'm just starting to wrap my head around it too, because it's, you know, we're entering a new era, but the, the past, you know, five years of knowing he has Marfan, but him not really understanding that it's life threatening have been very blissful. And I knew it. Like I, I knew, I, I always told myself, Allison, these are the easy days, the days where he doesn't have the fears around around mortality and now that those days are over it's it's heartbreaking at the same time i'm so proud of james and the person he's becoming and i know like i am absolutely confident that he can handle challenge like this mm -hmm. uh will he need help and support absolutely and he's got a lot of support but i know he can do it yeah and he's, so he's met other kids with Marfan. When did you start bringing him kind of like into the community? Because he's the only one in the family with Marfan, That's right. right. That's right. And so, it, you know, clearly, while his father and I love him the most and know him the most, we can't give him the perspective of having a connective tissue condition. That's just something we can't provide. So we need to look to our extended Marfan family and connective tissue family to get that. And so we went to the Sacramento NorCal walk. We were living in San Francisco and he was diagnosed six months after he was diagnosed. And that was the first time. Oh, actually, that was the first time he'd been around people with Marfan. I had been around with people with Marfan because I went to the conference before. So it was not my first time, which I think was a blessing because the first time I was around people with connective tissue conditions. It was maybe two weeks after he was diagnosed. It was very intense for me. But this was a, a bit after we went to the walk. He met some friends. People fawned all over him. He, I think he got to you know, help 
do balloons or something, he felt very important. So he, ever since, he's just loved being around people of Marfan. When we went to Capitol Hill in 2020, he and Taborski McClellan totally bonded. You know, this is a man just, so our, our, for our listeners that don't know Taborski, he's like me and my husband's age. So he's, he's practically like a father figure to Danes, but the two of them just like really hit it off. They did. And I think I just, I don't know. It was just that, that Marfan connection. I don't know how else to put it. And so as soon as James got old enough to go to conference and attend the children's portion of the conference, we brought him every single year. And then starting last year, he went to Marfan Camp for Victory as well. So he's had, you know, two weeks of being with kids that are his peers. And it's been wonderful for him, particularly this year at camp. The first year, there weren't a lot of kids his age. He loved it, but it was basically like him being carried around by teenage girls, which was hilarious to see the pictures. (laughs) But this year, there were like other boys that were around his age. He actually bonded with a kid whose father died last year of Marfan-related complications. I mean, maybe that's what kind of brought on some of this more like, oh, this is a serious thing, is meeting, you know, this this child. But it's it's so important for us... that James has friends in the Marfan community because we hope that when he's a teenager and he has questions that he doesn't want to ask us or ask his providers about, he can go to mentors, you know, young adult mentors, other friends that have been through similar situations and get their take on it. Yeah. I love that. I love that you have him like so connected to others and I don't know. It's really, he's just, you're right. I mean, everybody dotes over him. I mean, I, I dote over him when I meet James. I'm like, oh, there you are. Like, I just, I love him. <laughs> he's so cute. Um, and he's just so outgoing and everything. And I think that connection to the community is such a critical piece. It's been, I think it's been incredible for a lot of people. And I'm so glad that you all are connected to everybody in the community and getting those connections in early for him. So you, you are as... In the beginning of this episode, you mentioned that you are in the medical field and that this diagnosis has kind of brought on a different side of the medical field that you hadn't seen before. Do you want to dive into that a little more? Yeah, absolutely. So in in my work with hospitals and physicians, I I very much know what the strategy is what the incentives are. And it always kind of bothered me from just from a more philosophical standpoint. But then when we were heavy utilizers of healthcare, and I was the mother of a patient, it became profoundly irritating, and also overwhelming. You know, we have, we have resources, we have money. I know my parents are both clinicians. I know how to navigate the system. I'm not afraid to stand up to doctors. We're white. We're a hetero family. And yet, and yet, the system is so hard to navigate. It is profoundly frustrating at at best, heartbreaking at worst, truly. And I I will, you know, some days I just shake my head at what I see, you know, whether it's having an experience with a health system or, or provider organization, 
or insurance companies. I feel like there are a lot of things that are broken and I knew it as a consultant technologist in the space, but like now I really profoundly know it as a patient family. Yeah. And so what are the, if you had to pick like the opportunities that you see that would make a major difference in like the opportunities for change in the system that would make a major difference for people in our community, what stands out to you based on your experience? This sounds so simple, Katie, and it's so simple yet so difficult. Uh, It's listening to patients. And I mean like not half listening and then telling them what you think they should hear. It's like really listening and trusting their experience. And I, I know you've had many experiences, including your diagnosis story, where people needed to listen to you and they did not. And I, I wish there were that listening and that trust. You know, people, people are dumb. And people that have ge- rare genetic conditions, they know a lot about them. And they also know a lot about their body. So I think educating providers on how to truly listen to people and to trust them could actually take us a long way. And there's a, you know, health systems are always talking about patient-centered care. And I think it's just like a buzz phrase. I don't really think it's patient-centered at all. I think it's something that maybe people aspire to on their, uh, you know, but are we putting processes and policies in place to actually make our healthcare system patient-centered? I don't think we are. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. I also think there needs to be better data collection. And I mean this in like a really simple way and then like a huge macro way. So for example, simple way. When I am filling out a patient form for my son and uh, I have to fill out for the umpteenth time all my son's health conditions and history and all that, it is so it it's it's triggering like when I'm feeling already on the edge it's so hard it takes me back to those initial days and also our time is valuable just because it's going to help you bill and collect easier I don't want to have to fill out that form just go look at epic you literally have it right there on your screen like these are just this is super simple but like on in a bigger picture way I think one of the challenges for our community and it is lack of data on our both our genomic information as well as our clinical histories. So in for Marshan, we have database, we have a uh, there's an aortic database. I think it's kept in it started in Europe, but there's, you know, there's a couple thousand entries there and then Lots of academic medical centers around the U.S. also have patient registries, but there's no unified source of data. Like, I could understand this for a super rare condition where there aren't very many people, but it's estimated that between one in five to 10,000 people have Marfan syndrome, not to mention the other connective tissue conditions. That's hundreds of thousands of people living with the condition across the world. Like, mm-hmm. that... That is a meaningful chunk of people. And so I think if we were better about collecting data on people and collecting full genomic information, which is becoming more possible given that is more affordable, 
we could really do incredible things. I think we could have better drug development and discovery if we had that data. And so those are just those are just two things. I'm sure we could probably have an entire podcast on Allison's ideas to fix the healthcare system, (laughs) but there's two. Yeah, I think those are really, really important. And I also, um, I want to explore something else that you just mentioned, which is like treatment and progress in research. So in that aspect, like what do you find the most important for Marfan? Well, I was, I was asking James about this and James said immediately, I want them to find a cure. I'm not sure who them is, but he, he wants a cure and I certainly want a cure too. And so I, I am shocked by the lack of progress we've made when it comes to connective tissue conditions, particularly when I look at other conditions that have had more success developing drugs. And this is why I advocate. This is why I raise money because I want this to change and I want things to happen. I feel like sometimes when I'm in these conversations, people think that I'm pushy or I'm not realistic or I don't get how complicated Marfan is. And I I am pushy. I will admit that. But I am realistic and I do understand how complicated Marfan is and connective tissue conditions. But that doesn't mean that we should not be pushing for therapies that either completely eradicate the symptoms of Marfan syndrome or pie in the sky. And I totally think this is possible in the coming decades, a cure. And so I don't think it is radical to talk about that. And I don't think it is, I don't think it's radical at all to talk about that. And when people, you know, roll their eyes at me, I'm not sure they understand that the clock is ticking for James. The clock is ticking. And you know, every these connective tissue conditions are degenerative. James's body is the best it's going to be today. <laughs> and unless we do something about it, things are just going to keep on degrading. That is unacceptable to me. I refuse to, I refuse to say that's okay. I acknowledge the strides that we've made in the past 20, 30, 40 years. Surgical interventions have been a godsend and have absolutely saved lives. Have they made people's lives better? Have they improved quality of life? Yes, people are living longer for sure on average. That doesn't mean everyone, but there's still a lot of work we need to do. And so that time sensitivity and urgency, if, if you don't have skin in this game, I'm not sure you really understand how critical that is. And as a patient advocate, I want my providers to understand that I, that every day I wake up and think about that. I'm sure you do too, Katie. This is just, this is something that sure we live with, but it doesn't mean we accept it and it doesn't mean we work hard to change the way it is. 
I totally agree with you because I don't think like, I think I've talked to this about this with Maya before, but like, as you mentioned, we've made incredible, like the research, I'm, I'm taking we out of this. I did not do anything. I did not have anything to do with surgical interventions, right? We as a society have come far, I think, with surgical interventions, particularly for the aorta. And I think that's what's attributed as the success point for increasingly, as you mentioned, average life expectancy of Marfan. But it's still not a great option. Like it's it's not a great option. When you talk about a cure, what does that mean to you? When I talk about a cure, I want James to have a Marfan symptom-free life. Now, whatever that means genetically, I mean, you know, uh, for him, I want him to live life to the fullest where every day he doesn't have to think about Marfan. He doesn't have to make career decisions based on his health. He doesn't have to move because of his health. He doesn't have to have, you know, conversations with his insurance company about whether or not they're paying for a procedure. He doesn't have to worry about going into bankruptcy if that happens and he suddenly has to pay $500,000 out of pocket because he's had this insane medical emergency and you think this doesn't happen, but it does. It happens every day. And so that's what, when I think of the word cure, I think of a life where James does not have to think about having this genetic mutation. Got it. It's not having to worry about an aortic surgery either in the future. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there, we're coming near the end of our time here. There are medical professionals who listen to this podcast. And I think you've mentioned a couple of things that I think personally, I think medical professionals should know. But if there was you know, something that you would want them to know or take away from this episode, what would that be? So I spent a lot of this episode railing on the system and providers. So I just, I do want to take a step back and say that in the past five years, we have worked with a small handful of providers that are the most incredible people I've ever met. Now, I'm not saying these people, they're common. Not every physician is like this, but boy, when you meet a doctor that connects with your child and with you, that trusts you, that genuinely wants what is best for your child, and also recognizes that at the end of the day, it's not up to them what we decide to do or not do. They're here to counsel us and advise us. I want to say to those providers, thank you for dedicating your life to our community. You know, we have, you know this, Katie, like we have some providers in our community that I, I just like, every time I see them, I feel like a fangirl. Like, <laughs> like ah! you know, um, they're just, they're just so incredible. And they really, you can tell how invested they are in these kids and these adults. And so to the, to those providers, I think those are the ones listening to your podcast, to be quite honest, Katie. I just want to say, give you my profound thanks. If maybe you're not, you don't fall into this category, I would go back to, you know, the trust issue. When you're working with a patient, just it's so important to keep in mind, or their parents, 
they know their own bodies. And it's important to listen to that. And every, every single person is different. Just because you have a connective tissue condition doesn't mean you follow some sort of prescribed path or your body is a certain way. You know, we're, we're all, we're all unique. And so I think listening, listening to your patients, trying to understand them and their motivation. So important. It is so incredibly important. And I want to reiterate the thanks that you mentioned to those specialists that have been with us on this path. Y'all are, I want to just say like, y'all are the best. Like (laughs) you really change lives. And I think there's a lot of people in our community who really appreciate you. If you're listening, thank you. I also want to ask you if there was someone else in your shoes, maybe either in your shoes where you are right now today or in your shoes where you were when James was diagnosed with this, what advice would you give them about dealing with this? Sometimes when people get a diagnosis either for themselves or for a family member the initial reaction is to not confront it because it's scary (laughs) it's terrifying but i think it is imperative if you if you are moving through this and forward with your life you absolutely have to confront it if that means crawling in a dark hole for six months that that's just what it takes And, you know, yes, it sucks. Yes, you should not have to be doing this. Yes, it's not fair. Until you actually stare it in the face and you say to yourself, this is a life and death issue. My child's life is on the line. Yes, he could die. And you really accept that. You're not going to be able to continue a wholehearted life. Tara Brock, she's, I don't know if you are familiar with her. She's a meditation guru. She has this phrase, radical acceptance. And I think about that a lot in our healthcare journey. I have to radically accept the truth. And if I don't do that, I'm not truly living and I can't get the good stuff too. So like, I think, you know, one of the things I was really surprised two years after James's diagnosis was I, I kind of took stock of who we were as a family. And I thought, oh my gosh, like we are such better people in the face of this. And I hope it wouldn't have taken a life-threatening disease to do this. I eventually hope I would have evolved as a person to get to this level, but maybe not. I feel like I am a much better mom. I'm a better partner. I'm a better boss. I'm a better communicator. I'm better. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm a better person. Because this is my life. And I, I have been able to accept, I, I, I accept the silver lining. I know that phrase sounds so trite. It's like, oh my God. Particularly if you're at the beginning of this journey and you don't see a silver lining yet, that is okay. Like, there. It took me a really long time to see that. But once I was able to see that and appreciate it, I was very grateful. Yeah. I think that's that's great advice and it's kind of speaks to like the evolution of dealing with like how you go through the different phases of like dealing emotionally with this and then you know as you start to understand more and get through that grieving process like there have been some beautiful beautiful connections that I wouldn't have had without this condition and being connected 
with these beautiful people in our communities. And it, it does speak to like, you know, the increased empathy and all of the things that come with having to like actually look at your life rather than just kind of do the motions and move through it. So I think yeah. that's really great yeah. advice for somebody. It is. And I, I unfortunately attended a, a live stream of a funeral for a four-year-old in our community recently. And his mother said that he was just perfect the way he, the way he was. And despite the, his body, you know, not, not being able to function and there's just nothing I would change about my son. There's nothing. And my daughter too, they're, they are completely perfect human beings. And I just, I feel so grateful that I get to be their mom. Just very, very lucky. Well, they are lucky to have you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your experience, Allison. Thank you, Katie. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode featuring Allison Pullins, whose son James has Marfan syndrome. There are lots of helpful links in the episode show notes if you're ready to meet others, get involved, or just need support. There's also a link for the VEDS Collaborative Natural History Study, a research study led by Dr. Shireen Shalhoub, open to people with VEDS, Marfan, Lois Dietz, and similar connective tissue conditions. On the next episode, we're going to talk to my brother, Jacob Frederick, about his experience in dealing with my diagnosis of VEDS or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. If you like this show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media, which will help us raise awareness of these conditions. And you can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.